I've actually brought a few of my Bibles with me today. Uh, I wish this were all of them, uh, but it's not. Just a sample. Uh, I have a problem, and I need you to pray for me. Uh, you know, on one hand, I feel bad about how many Bibles I own. On the other hand, like you wouldn't say to a mechanic, oh, you own too many wrenches or uh, too many screwdrivers. I mean, this is the tools of my trade, and yet I do have a serious problem. I do have a favorite. This is my favorite one, though. This is the one that I use on a daily uh, basis. 88% of Americans actually own a Bible. I'm not... Um, 88% of Americans are followers of Jesus, but that many own a Bible in their home. And, and maybe you're um, more like me, and you have a bunch of Bibles in your home, and the way that you decide which one you bring to church with you is the one that was nearest to the door when you left. Don't grab that. Maybe you even have a car Bible that you just leave in the car for church back and forth. Uh, maybe you're more like the 88% and you have just one uh, or somewhere in between. Maybe your favorite Bible is uh, www.biblegateway.com and you love the Bible app or you have something similar on your mobile device. Uh, if you do have a favorite Bible or you just have one Bible, I want to tell you the story today of how that Bible got into your hands. Because I think if you knew the story you would be more confident about studying it and sharing it. And the story of the Bible that you're holding in your hands right now, it began a long time ago. In fact, it began before the Grand Canyon was formed or before Niagara Falls was formed. In fact, it began before God created the heavens and the earth because the scripture began in the heart of God by the will of God. That's what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says. You can see it on the screen behind me. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know that the Scripture began with the will of God and not the will of man. Now that's a common accusation that we hear out in the public square. The Bible is nothing more than a bunch of stories written and gathered by men. Now, if we were asking the question today, did men write the Bible? We would say yes to that. God did use human authors because that's how God accomplishes his will. He uses people. When he wants the poor to be helped, he doesn't print his own money. He uses you and I's generosity. When he wants someone to be encouraged, he doesn't loft messages down in the clouds. He stirs the heart of his people. God always uses people to accomplish his will, and the authoring of the scripture was no different. But we know that it was not produced by the will of man, Peter says, but by the will of God when those men were carried along by the Spirit of God. What we call the Old Testament, you see in your listening guide, began to be written in 1400 B.C. up until 400 B.C. After that, in 250 to 200 B.C., the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, was produced. Now, I know I just lost a bunch of you with the word Septuagint, right? You think, what on earth does that have to do with my life? But you have to remember that uh, the story of the Bible was produced inside the story of God's people. 
God had chosen a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to build a nation through you. And your descendants are going to be more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And why did God do that? Because he wanted to demonstrate to the world, this is what I am like. Here's how I work in the lives of humanity. And I'm going to do that most clearly in my people, Israel. And God was their provider. God was their protector. But they were normal, just like you and I. They were God's people, but they were normal. And so they were tempted by all kinds of things, just like us. They were tempted with idolatry. Because they would look at the nations that were next door to them. And they would say, you know, our neighbors, when they go to plant their crops, they pray to their one God of the harvest. And that's that only God's job is to bring about the harvest. And you would know that that may be tempting if you depended on the harvest for your livelihood, that you were praying to a God whose only job was to bring the harvest. You'd be tempted by that. And so the Israelites, they began to stop worshiping the one true God and worship a God like that. Or if you really, really wanted to have kids and it was that season of your life, you would notice that your nations, uh, the nations to your left, they had a God who was just in charge of fertility. You would be tempted to pray a prayer in that direction. But God said, no, you have to worship me. Those are not real. Those are not real gods. You're just praying to the sky. That's, that's nothing. Worship me. But they, they wouldn't. So God was faithful and loving to them, filled with grace. And so he would send them the prophets. Now, we don't associate the prophets and grace, but that's what it is. Because God disciplines those whom he loves. He tells us the truth. He loves us enough to do that. And that's what the middle section of the Bible is. One prophet after another, reminding God's people, be true to God, be faithful to him. Don't be tempted by these idols. But Israel refused to listen. And so the discipline came in the forms of Babylon from the south and Assyria from the north. They came and Israel was really no longer Israel. There were pockets of Israel in Babylon. There were pockets of Israel in Assyria. And God's people began to be dispersed. And when they were dispersed, they learned some new languages, like Greek, for example, because Alexander the Great was conquering the world. So some people got together and they said, we have what, what we call the Old Testament, what they called the scripture. We have it in Hebrew. Our children and our children's children are not going to speak Hebrew as their primary language anymore. They're going to speak Greek. So let's translate our scriptures into the common language of the day. That is a story of the Bible, that God you, use, uh, loves you and I enough to make sure that we have access to his word in a way that we can understand. So the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and that was known as the Septuagint. Jesus comes about 4 BC, born in Bethlehem, to be a fulfillment of those scriptures. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his followers begin to share the message. And the books of the Greek New Testament was written. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. Why? Because that was the language of the day. We call them books of the New Testament. They were, most of them were more like letters. It was a letter to the Romans and a letter to the Corinthians and a letter to the Galatians. Even the Gospel of Luke was a letter written to a man named Theophilus. And something interesting happened a few hundred years later. In AD 397, you see in the timeline, there was the Council of Carthage that established the Orthodox New Testament canon. That was when the New Testament was officially formed. Now, I don't know how many of you watched the Da Vinci Code or read the book, uh, but the Da Vinci Code has become to many Christians like the boogeyman. Like any mention of it, you get a chill down your spine because Tom Hanks, in the middle of 
the uh, Da Vinci Code. Tom Hanks, who we love. He's like the patron saint of being awesome in America. And his sweet face, he begins to question our faith. And he says in the middle of the Da Vinci Code, well, you know, the New Testament, uh, it was voted on. And if you you know, grew up in a normal church or have limited church experience, your pastor was not telling you that the New Testament was voted on. And so here's Tom Hanks, who you've trusted for most of your life, is, is saying that the New Testament was voted on. You're like, whoa, and the Da Vinci Code sends a chill down our spine because we didn't know that. Right? And it's true. In Carthage, right before 400 B.C., there was a vote. But it wasn't a vote of what should be in or a vote that, of what should be left out. It was a vote of confirmation. These are the scriptures. Because here's what happened. Within hours of Jesus' resurrection, within hours of Jesus' resurrection, there was already some alternative theories. We see those in the scripture. The religious leaders, uh, they said, here's the story that you're going to spin. That his disciples snuck in, stole his body. So you have two things that are happening. The followers of Jesus are spreading the story of his powerful life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promised return. They're sharing the gospel. Meanwhile, other people are sharing these alternative theories. So you have both things growing. And then Peter begins to write letters to encourage the first churches. And Paul begins to write letters to encourage the first churches. And how did they write them? Did they write them of their own will or their own opinion? No, they were carried along by the Spirit of God, inspired by God. Meanwhile, you have other letters circulating, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas. I mean, we wouldn't believe that Gospel. What a terrible name, the Gospel of Judas. But the Gospel of Peter, maybe, maybe that's real. And we find out about these things, and we learn that there was this vote. And, and so what happened in 397 AD, a group of pastors, a group of ministers, a group of people got together and they said, let's draw a line in the sand officially. There are all these other theories out there. There are all these other letters out there. We know what is the scripture. Even Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he refers to the apostle Paul's letters as scripture. So we, from the very beginning, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were saying, there are some things that are scripture and you should listen to those. And there are some things that are not. So the scripture would stick to the church. But there were all kinds of other theories out there. There were all kinds of other letters, all kinds of false doctrine out there. So they gather in Carthage. They say, let's draw a line in the sand and let's officially say what we already know. These were inspired by God. These others are just the opinion and the will of men. A couple years later, a man named Jerome he translates that Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, into Latin. Again, because the story of the Bible in your hands is that God loved you enough to make sure that you had a copy in a language that you understood. And you think, well, nobody understands Latin. And it's hard for us to imagine that Latin was ever the common language of the day, but it was. So he took those Hebrew manuscripts from the Old Testament. He took those Greek manuscripts from the New Testament and he translated it into the popular language. It was known as the Vulgate and it became the standard for the church in those days and was the standard for a long time. Now something interesting happened because there began to be a divide between the clergy, people like me, and regular people like you. Because eventually, 
the world changes. I mean, we know that. It seems like it's changing every single time I refresh my news app on my phone. The world changes, and Latin was no longer the popular language of the day. But yet the Bible only remained in Latin. So the ministers, they're studying Latin because the tool of their trade is in Latin. So they have expertise. They can read the Bible. They know what it says. But regular people, they no longer bother to learn Latin. So what happened is the only people who could read and study the scripture were the ministers. And let me let you in on a little secret. There is no difference between a normal person and a minister. He just stands up a little bit higher on Sunday mornings than you do. No difference. So just like you are tempted, a minister is tempted. Just like bad ideas can sneak into your thinking, bad ideas can sneak into the thinking of a minister. Just like sometimes you can be greedy, ministers can be greedy. And so in those days, there's this big divide between the regular people and the ministers. And the ministers began to kind of add some stuff on to the pure salvation that's found in Christ. So they'd say, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to back that up by living a really, really great life. And you need to back that up by making sure you attend church all the time. And then... They said, you know, we all have family members that we really, really love, but we're kind of unsure about their faith. So we're unsure about where they go when they die. They go to heaven and be with God, or they go to that other place and not be with God. And they said, but here's, how, uh, here's some things that you can do to give them a little extra push after they die. So if you're sweet little granny, you're unsure, you want to put a little wind in her sails to make sure that she gives you to, gets to heaven, then give an offering to the church. I mean, you talk about a good way to raise money at church. That's a pretty good way. Give an offering. It will help guarantee that your loved one does not suffer forever. little bonus in their spiritual account. And nobody knew any different because only the people were, that were saying that had access to God's word. The ministers were saying, just trust us. And trusting a minister is something that you should be able to do. And so here you have this great divide. And in that great divide came all kinds of false and inaccurate teaching of the scripture. And into that divide stepped many men. One of those was John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe stepped into the mix for those of us who would follow in his steps and speak English. And he said, everybody who speaks English needs an English copy of the scripture. And so he took that Latin version and he translated it into English. And his followers were behind him with access to the scripture in their hands and they began to speak out against the atrocities and the false teaching that they were seeing in the church. And man, did Wycliffe get in trouble. When people in power sense that they are losing power, they lose their minds. From the beginning of history to the end of history. When people in power can sense that they are losing their power, they lose their minds. You and I are no different. And that's what happened to the church leadership in England. They lost their minds because they could feel their power slipping away because regular people had a copy of the Bible in their hands and they punished Wycliffe for his role in it. They would find as many possible copies of his Bible and burn them. So that very few people had them. 
143 years later, a man named William Tyndale would take Wycliffe's work one step further. Because remember, Wycliffe, he translated the Bible from a translation. It was, the New Testament was written in Greek, and then it was translated to Latin, and Wycliffe took it from Latin to English. And Tyndale says, now let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to those original languages. Let's go back to the earliest copies of manuscripts that we have. And William Tyndale is known as the father of the English Bible because of his work. I mean, this made him very, very, very unpopular. And where Wycliffe was just kind of pushed to the margins of society, the church actually hunted William Tyndale down. He tried to flee into Germany to continue his work, but they, they found him there. He had printed about 6,000 copies of his Bible, just out of his own pocket. And uh, he sold and distributed a few, but the church in England... Uh, bought the rest. So they bought almost 6,000 copies and then burned them right there. Now, what they didn't know was that William Tyndale had 6,000 Bibles worth of debt to that publisher. So when they bought all those Bibles, they paid off his debt. And that freed him up to improve his translation, to make it more accurate and start printing more and more and more copies. So what they meant for harm actually was a huge benefit to English-speaking Jesus followers that would follow in his wake. He lived on the run for most of his life until he was betrayed by a fellow Englishman. They arrested him, put him into prison for over a year, and then they strangled him. And they hated him so much they hated his work so much. They hated his message that the Bible should be in the hands of everybody so much that after they killed him, they just burned him for good measure. Well, because of his sacrifice, because of the sacrifices of John Wycliffe and other people like him, the political climate, the spiritual climate of England began to change. So within a hundred years, lots of people were clamoring for an official Bible in English. Not that was rogue and under the radar, but one that would be blessed by the church and even blessed by the king. And that's where we get the King James Version, which was finished in 1611. And that version of the Bible remained the most popular version until the mid-80s. Even this year, the King James Version will be in the top three best-selling Bibles of the year. The same work that they did all those years ago. Now, at least an important question, a little bit nerdy, but important question that maybe you've wondered is why do we have so many Bible translations? I mean, you go to Barnes and Noble today to the Bible section, there's lots of options to choose from. And I'm not just talking about like pink option for ladies and camo option for men, as if we just fall neatly into those two categories. You either love pink or you love camo. That's the definition of boys and girls, but all kinds of different versions. There's the revised standard version, and then there's the new revised standard version, and there's the American standard Bible, and then there's the new American standard Bible, and the new international version. What are all those translations about? Well, you see in your listening guide, uh, there are two philosophies on translating the Bible. One is called formal equivalence, and it is a word-for-word translation. Uh, The next uh, style is called dynamic equivalence, and it is a thought-for-thought translation. So when somebody takes one of those early, 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 early Greek manuscripts from Paul and from Peter, they have a choice. Do we want to translate this Greek wording Word for word, one word at a time. This word in Greek, this word in English. The next one. This word in Greek, this word in English. This word in Greek, this word in English. 
It's very precise. But remember, uh, those first sets of scripture were written a long time ago to a different set of people, to a different culture, in a different language. So sometimes in that very precise word-for-word translation, we actually lose the meaning because it was written in a different culture. So you have this other philosophy over here, dynamic equivalence. It's thought for thought. Those same translators who want you to have a copy of the scripture in your own language, they think, let's do it phrase by phrase so we communicate the meaning as clear as possible in a way that is the most readable. I I took it one step further and brought a graph with me uh, so you could see. So you could see the, uh, the challenge that these translators have. They want to make it as readable as possible, but also be as precise as possible. And the point of the different versions is that they err on one side or the other. Others are going to emphasize the, the precision, and others are going to emphasize the readability. So when you go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon or to the Christian bookstore, these are, this is the decision that you're making. Do you want something that's a little bit more readable, or do you want something that's a little bit more precise? And thank God that he's given us all of those options. But I know that I lost a bunch of you back in the beginning with the word Septuagint. So what does this mean? What does all this mean? Well, what's the story mean? Why is this important to us? I would love for you to write down three things. Number one, the Bible in your hands has 3,000 years of history behind it and underneath it. The scripture, 66 books, 40 plus authors, authors, written in a span of 1,500 years. 66 books, 40 plus authors, in a span of 1,500 years. And yet it all comes together to tell one story that's so simple that even our youngest children can understand it. And yet at the same time, there's such diversity here. It gives us confidence in what we find in its pages. 66 separate books written by 40 different people in the span of 1,500 years. I mean, you compare that, for example, to the Book of Mormon. This is not opinion, just a story. Joseph Smith, one man, goes into the woods, comes out with a new Bible and says, trust me. You compare it to the Quran. One man goes into a cave, back and forth to that cave over a period of 23 years, comes out, says, trust me. The scripture, 40 different people. The first one dead a thousand years before the last one is even born. There's no way that Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, could send an email to John, who wrote the last book, and said, hey, dude, started this new religion, got some really great ideas in it, going to need you to back me up a thousand years from now. No conspiracy. No small group of people trying to protect the truth. A thousand plus years, 40 different people, 66 books written to unique contexts, diverse, and yet just one story. You know, the the intellectual opponents of Jesus... They want to make us feel like we've built this giant house of faith on the foundation of a tiny pebble. They want us to think that's all we have here in the scripture. Just a tiny pebble's worth of evidence. 
And they would say to us in our college classes and in Facebook posts and uh, in articles, uh, how foolish are you to rearrange your whole life, to uh, exclude people, to be so narrow-minded, to orient everything that you have around something that is so unsure. They would tell us, oh, you just have a pebble's worth of evidence, a pebble's worth of confidence you can have in the But the scripture has 3,000 years of history underneath it. It has the best and brightest scholars from every generation, both promoting it and attacking it. You don't ever let someone convince you that you just have a pebble that you have built your house of faith on. You built your house of faith on a mountain. down a mountain. People have been trying since the hours after Jesus' resurrection to bring it down. There won't be a scholar in in this generation that does what scholars have tried to do since the beginning. So have confidence today in the Bible you hold in your hands. Number two, the Bible in your hands costs more than $50. You may say, well, mine only costs $5. The Bible in your hand costs more than $5. Wycliffe lost his standing. Tyndale lost his life. I mean, even today, there are brothers and sisters, same as us in North Korea and parts of China, who have this in fragments and pages because if they had a copy of it, they would lose their lives. They put it to memory and then they throw it away. So the only copy they have is in their heart. You think about the millions of hours that people have spent in the earliest days copying by hand the words of Paul word for word, the words of Peter, word for word, the words of Moses, word for word, the words of David, word for word. Even when Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, marvelous breakthrough. First book he fully printed was the scripture. But still, somebody was in that print shop changing letter after letter after letter, printing one page at a time. The Bible in your hands costs more than whatever you paid for it. And finally, The church is at its best when you read the Bible in your hands. The capital C church lost its way when the responsibility of reading and studying was just placed in the hands of pastors and ministers. We all need to take on a see for myself mentality, not with the heart of a skeptic or a critic, but taking advantage of what God has done. He has gone to great lengths to both provide and preserve his word in a way that you can understand you don't need an intermediary a person to tell you what's in there you can do that yourself last night amanda and i were celebrating with some friends and we went to papa's steakhouse if you're not familiar with papa's steakhouse in my personal opinion they have the best steaks in all of houston which is saying something uh, amazing restaurant you got to kind of save your nickels and dimes a little bit before you go but in my opinion every once in a while totally worth it and so we went 
And uh, uh, I was actually feeling some good chicken kind of thing on the way there. I was just feeling that in my soul. And then I got there. There was literally not any chicken on the menu. No chickens lost their lives in Papa's Steakhouse that night. But many cows gave their lives for the cause. And so I reoriented very quickly around uh, 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 just a really, really great steak. I said to the waiter, I want the juiciest one that you have, the most tasty one that you have. And he made a recommendation. So we order our food. And it's a classy uh, joint. You know, you don't wear your tennis shoes into this place. You, 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 uh, you sit down and then they bring you the bread, right? And you, you eat the bread because it's, you know, carbs. And, uh, and then once the bread is gone, they come back and they take the bread and the plates away. They reset the table. It's brand new. They take that little comb and brush all the, the crumbs away. And, and then they bring out the salads. Some people at our table ordered salads. I don't know why you would ever do that, but some people did. And they ate their salads. And then when the salads were done, they came and took it away, and brushed off all the crumbs, reset the table. And then it was the time for the entree. And they just make you wait. They just let you marinate in the expectation of the great steak that is coming. And finally they come. And they come out like a wave of people with beef and potatoes in their hands and they set it in front of you and I think it was probably the best steak that I had ever had before just so juicy it was was, was awesome just perfect now imagine if after the bread and after the salad and I had barely eaten anything all day to save up room for whatever I was going to order that night and I ordered this great steak at the recommendation of the waiter and he brings it out in all its pomp and circumstance and I said uh, um, I need you to set it down I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to eat it and then tell me how it tastes. You'd be like, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not paying all this money. I want to taste it for myself. And yet that's what most of us have done today. Most of you assigned the responsibility of reading and the study of scripture to me today. And you put it in my hands and you've come today and you're asking me, how did it taste? Well, first I want to tell you, it tasted great. It tasted great. I was discouraged this week and it picked me up. There's a lot of noise in my week and it cut through the noise. I needed some, some power in my bones and it gave it to me and there were some thinking that was incorrect in my mind and straightened me out. I want to tell you today that it tasted good. But God has loved you enough to provide and preserve a copy for you that you don't have to take my word for it. I don't have to come and sit at your table every Sunday and say, trust me, see for yourself. It tastes good. And it's good for you. It's the help that you need. It's the power that you want. God has done this for us. This is the story of how that Bible got into your hands. And this is the reason why God put it there. I want to invite you back next week. I'll be here again. And we'll answer the next question. Okay, if it tastes that good how do I read it because sometimes I read it it tastes like dry stale bread how can I read it in a way that I hear the voice of God myself so I want to invite you to come back next week let's pray together
God, to say thank you for your word is uh, so, uh, feels so small. But we are grateful. We're grateful to have a copy for ourselves. Thank you that it's living and active. It's sharp like a sword. And cuts through all of the sit still and listen. Give us the strength to follow through. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Watch you stand to your feet.